0: Okay, if you have a Bible, you can open to Ecclesiastes chapter 8, we'll look at verses 10 through 17 this morning, and the text is also printed in the bulletin on the next page for you. There are some Bibles available in the back uh, on the table if you'd like to have one of those. So one of the big struggles that people have with the Bible, Um, big struggle people have with God, uh, people have with the Christian faith. Uh, with life, it's the difficulty of apparent contradictions, apparent contradictions, uh, especially like what we find in a lot of places in Scripture, really. People want nice, uh, neat, tidy, manageable answers to everything, and it drives us crazy when there are disparate things, dissonant things, uh, things that we can't reconcile in our minds. The Bible says one thing in one place, but in another place it seems to contradict itself. So, what do we do with that? What do we do with that? Uh, it's more than an intellectual challenge. This often uh, deeply disturbs people and uh, is a reason for people resisting the faith. Uh, for instance, when an apparent contradiction involves a violation of justice, it's really painful. Right? So the Bible talks a lot about the righteous being rewarded and the wicked being punished. And that makes sense, and it resonates with uh, the expectations that we have for how the world really should be. But then we get the righteous being punished. And we get the wicked uh, being rewarded. And our sense of what is right, our sense of what is fair, is violated. And everything is chaos at that point. So, uh, so the big question is, what do you do with that? What do you do with that as a Christian? Uh, how do you live with the disparities? How do you live with the dissonance? How do you live with the fact that you can't reconcile the most important apparent contradictions that are just like, not, uh, like, they're like nails on a chalkboard? Spiritually speaking, Um, that's what we'll talk about this morning. How do we deal with this as Christians? So let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, we come to you with our questions, probably expecting, uh, maybe even demanding, to hear certain answers from you in certain ways that we think we should hear them. And we pray that you would help us to hear what you have to say to us, even if it means that we have to rethink our questions and uh, have to rethink everything. We pray that you would speak to us now and help us to understand and receive your word through your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vapor. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There's a vapor that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vapor. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this passage basically sort of super boiled down, it's, Basically saying, sometimes it's impossible to make sense of what God is doing, how God is working. Sometimes it's impossible to make sense of that. And even though that can really bother us, we can still find joy in our life with God. In spite of not being able to understand everything God is doing, in spite of uh, what we often see happening around us, we can rest assured knowing that when it all shakes out in the end, it will be well with us. By saying that, we're not ignoring the problem of the dissonance, the problem of the apparent contradictions and the nails on the chalkboard. We We have to live with the dissonance, and that can be very painful. But through our relationship with Jesus, we can have peace. That's what the Bible's about. Ecclesiastes is wonderfully honest with problems like this, so we should follow his reasoning, even if it leads us in thinking about some uncomfortable things. Uh, Here's the problem. We have instincts, we have expectations about what is fair and right. If you live a good, clean life, you should live long and prosper. If you're a bad person, you should get what's coming to you. The sooner the better, probably. In fact, that's not just a private opinion we have. God himself tells us about righteousness and wickedness in ways that shape our expectations along these very lines of thinking. But then we see unjust things happening all around us and the cognitive dissonance causes our brains to seize up and we get the sparks and smoking and the blue screen of death and it just says does not compute so god's holy word says it so clearly let's look at several places they're just from the book of proverbs there's more than this there's a lot more than this even in the book of proverbs uh, which actually is written by the same author as ecclesiastes by solomon but here he says this in proverbs 3 he says the lord's curse is on the house of the wicked but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. It's good. Proverbs 10, the wage of the righteous leads to life, the gain of the wicked to sin. Proverbs 11, the righteous is delivered from trouble and the wicked walks into it instead. Or, if the righteous is repaid on earth, how much more are the wicked and the sinner? Or, No ill befalls the righteous, but the wicked are filled with trouble. So we read passages like this that clearly tell us to believe that God will bless the righteous and he'll deliver them from troubles while he'll curse the wicked on the other place and they'll just run straight into trouble, be full of trouble all the time. Right? These are the expectations that we have given to us in Scripture. These these are the expectations of Job and his friends who... Wonder why God would allow Job to suffer if Job didn't deserve it. He must deserve it. That's how it works. These are the expectations of <clears throat> Habakkuk, who prays and asks God how he could possibly let this wicked nation, the Babylonians, come and execute his righteous wrath against his own chosen people. How is that fair? How is that right? This is the expectation of Asaph in Psalm 73, which Joe led us through in our prayers of the people and we sang just a moment ago. When Asaph complains, the psalmist complains that the wicked enjoy these enviable lives of health and wealth and ease. This is the expectation of Jesus' own disciples in John 9 when they see the man who'd been born blind, remember? And they simply assume, like everybody would assume, that. It must have been either him or his parents who had sinned and that his affliction was the just reward of it. The expectation that's given to us by God in the scriptures, it's not just a private opinion, this is given to us by God in the scriptures, is that the righteous are rewarded and the wicked are punished. If he didn't want us to believe that, he shouldn't have written it down so many times. It's all over the place. But then in the very same scriptures, we find those expectations violated again and again. Painfully, Job suffered in spite of being righteous. He didn't deserve to suffer, but he suffered. The wicked Babylonians, they get away with murdering God's people. Asaph felt like his striving for righteousness was all in vain. The blind man's lifelong affliction was not about what he deserved. It was not about that at all. We wish our lives worked in the simple ways that are set forth in the Proverbs. We wish we could secure blessings for living a good life. And we wish swift justice would fall upon the wicked. But instead, our experience is much more like what Ecclesiastes describes here. In verse 10, the wicked, they go in and out of the holy place. Not only do they get away with their wickedness, they prance and they strut right in front of God. And he does nothing about it. They're praised in the city where they have done such things. All people speak well of them. They have fantastic reputations, even among God's own people. Verse 11, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil, right? So when God doesn't instantly strike them down with lightning and judgment, and they appear to get away with their evil, it just serves to encourage more sin, and the world becomes that much worse a place to be. Because God delayed his judgment. The wicked, they even have the honor of a decent burial when they die. You sort of pass over to the beginning of that verse. It doesn't seem like a big deal, but uh, to have a burial is it's an honorable thing, and it's a, a testimony to uh, the resurrection. When really, they deserve to go without a burial, like the man in Ecclesiastes 6, a few chapters ago, we talked about this, we've seen this before, uh, as a testimony that the wicked should have this testimony that there's no hope for their soul that they would be cursed by a righteous God. Right. But they get the honor of a decent burial. But it, just, it often looks like the wicked are blessed, or at least that God is doing nothing about them, that he's apparently unconcerned for justice after all. And uh, in spite of all this talk in the Bible that we have about justice and righteousness and the rewards and punishments, right? Uh, it says in verse 14, there's a vapor. He says this twice here, just to em- emphasize, a vapor that takes place, a vanity, right? That's what... Uh, shows up in a lot of our Bibles. This is vanity. This is emptiness. This is meaninglessness at its peak. There's a vapor that takes place on earth. There are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. Vapor, he says. So Phil Riken is a commentator on Ecclesiastes. He says, oh, the injustice of it all. This is This is painful stuff. Oh, the injustice of it all. If God is righteous, then we would expect him to reward the righteous and punish the wicked. Yet often he seems to do exactly the opposite. There's something that feels really wrong about that. It feels deeply wrong about this lack of justice. And everybody feels it because we've been taught by God himself to expect justice from him. But throughout the whole history of humanity for thousands and thousands of years, when you survey this world... Everything you see would lead you to believe that there is no justice, that God himself is unjust, uh, because he does not reward the righteous and he does not punish the wicked. Bad people are millionaires. And good folks get cancer and die. At the very best, with humility, we will say, God must be righteous. I just don't see how it's possible. But the apparent contradiction of that, it feels like this big problem. And it's a question that many Christians prefer not to think about, honestly. would rather not think about this. I'd rather not follow Ecclesiastes' line of thought here. And it's an objection that many non-Christians raise against the faith. They're dragging their heels. They're resisting the faith because of questions like this. Where is all this reward for righteousness or wickedness stuff that God is saying is so important to him? Where is it? The scriptures address this problem to help us in a few ways. First, firstly, we should remember God has destroyed the world in judgment before. I mean that's uh, that's what our New Testament reading said that Travis read from 2 Peter 3 says that the wicked deliberately overlook this fact when they think they can continue to sin and get away with it. Right? God has, don't forget, don't overlook this fact. It is overlooked Deliberately, but don't overlook the fact that God has destroyed the world in judgment before. Um, Peter continues, and he says that God has his reasons for delaying, for delaying his judgment. And we'll get back to that in a minute, but there's a real sense. The gospel declares to us, there's a real sense in which God has brought resolution to this dilemma. He has brought resolution to the problem when Jesus died on the cross, It was to reveal God's righteousness, right? So Romans 3, uh, this is printed there in the bulletin. I'll read a couple verses from it in verses 25 and 26, talking about Jesus being on the cross in order to secure the forgiveness of sins. He says, this was to show God's righteousness. Jesus hung on the cross. He died for our sins to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just. And that word in the Greek, just, is also the words translated righteousness. It's the same word in the Greek, just, righteous, interchangeable. So that he might be just or righteous. And the justifier, the one who declares righteous. The one who has faith in Jesus. So we've had a hard time reconciling all God's promises about justice when for so long it seemed like he's just passed over all the injustices. As Ecclesiastes demonstrates and Paul explicitly addresses, the Scriptures are aware of the problem of God not punishing injustice. Not only does God shape our expectations for justice, not only does God allow for contradictions to exist, contradictions to his justice and his promises about justice, but God addresses the dissonance and he reconciles all the disparities. His patience, his delay, his forbearance might look to us like tolerance. The wicked get away with their sins and they never see justice in this life. But then God sent forth his son to the cross in order to demonstrate his righteousness. He was never overlooking the wicked. He was never smiling and winking at sin and evil. He was never ignoring anyone's sin after all. He meted out his holy justice upon Jesus as he hung on the cross in order to fulfill true righteousness so that you could rest assured that he is in fact righteous, to demonstrate his righteousness. Not only is God just, but he's also the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God's the one who declares sinners to be righteous because of Jesus. And in doing that, he turns our biggest complaint here into the biggest reason for praise. There are righteous people. As it says in verse 14, there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. If you have an acute sense of justice, you'd probably say that's unfair, that the righteous suffer what's due to the wicked, and the wicked enjoy what's due to the righteous. But if you know Jesus, then you celebrate that. You celebrate that very fact because Jesus, the righteous one, suffered What you deserve, so that you, being a sinner, could enjoy what he deserves. That's right at the the very heart of our salvation. That's our way into the blessing of eternal life. That's our way into the relationship with God that we need. In some sense, it seems unfair that there would be this exchange, that Jesus, the righteous one, would suffer according to the wicked deeds on the cross, and that we would benefit from his righteousness. In some sense, it seems unfair. We can't understand how that works. We can't explain that. You can't explain that in some way that satisfies anybody's understanding or sense of justice. But in another sense, God says this is the perfect demonstration of his justice, and we can never thank him enough for it. And this, this salvation, would never have happened unless we lived in a world where the lives of the righteous could be cut short. And the wicked prospered and got away with their sins. It's uh, it's like the Lord of the Rings. It's pretty much always like the Lord of the Rings. Um, Frodo thinks he knows how justice should work. And he suggests to Gandalf. It's too bad Bilbo didn't kill that villain Gollum when he had the chance. Swift justice would have been good for Gollum. Too bad Gollum didn't get what was coming to him more quickly. But wise Gandalf corrects him. He says, many that live deserve death and some that die deserve life can you give it to them then do not be too eager to deal out death in judgment basically saying Frodo look yes injustice happens you're not God have a little humility Gandalf goes on to say that he suspects Gollum still has some part to play in the story and he's absolutely right spoiler alert hopefully by now you've (laughs) heard me tell the whole story Uh, in the end the good guys win and the bad guys lose because Gollum was as bad as Gollum could be and nobody killed him earlier it was precisely the delay of justice and Gollum's continuing opportunity for wickedness that caused the ring to be destroyed and the heroes to save the world it was precisely that so back to the real world our salvation never would have happened if everybody instantly got what was coming to them How did it come about that Jesus saved the world? Evil men pranced and strutted in the holy place right in front of God. They were praised by everyone in the city. And God didn't immediately strike them down for laying hands on his beloved son. They had continuing opportunity for wickedness. And they prevailed that day. And the only truly innocent, pure, beautiful man who ever lived was crushed. His life was cut short. Evil men. Crucified the good Lord. Great injustice led to God's perfect justice in our salvation. In fact, the just God, the righteous God, planned it that way. Even though we can't conceive of how that works. So, that's no license for us to commit sin. Right? We're not justified in our sin, even if God is able to use it, even if he does use it quite regularly, to bring about his good and just purposes. There's no license for that. Evil and injustice are really bad things that should not exist in this world. They should not exist in your life. But in his unfathomable wisdom, God has declared that evil should exist in order to demonstrate his righteousness. You can apply your heart all your life to understanding God's wisdom and that is just never going to happen. Verse 17, I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun, However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, don't listen to him. He cannot find it out. Can you conceive of the inconceivable righteousness of God? Can you admit that God's wisdom might just surpass your wisdom? Can you confess that what is an irreconcilable contradiction to you, something that you cannot reconcile and no one on earth can reconcile, can actually be the wonderful impenetrable work of God? Can you believe that when God delays his judgment, it's not because he's unjust, but it's because he's righteous and because he's gracious and he wants to provide sinners the opportunity to repent and be saved? That's what Peter says in our New Testament reading, 2 Peter 3. God delays because he's patient, and that's your salvation. The same world where the wicked have continuing opportunity to sin It's the very same world where the wicked have continuing opportunity to repent. So, rather than doing like the wicked do in our passage in Ecclesiastes, using God's delay as an excuse to sin, since apparently I haven't gotten caught yet, trust that God is going to bring his perfect justice and live like you can't wait until he does. If God were merely in the business of uh, behavior modification, He would train us like he trains dogs, right? Like Pavlov's dogs. He would train us to act like he wants us to act through association with immediate reward or speedy justice, right? But God is interested in our trusting him. He's interested in our fearing him. He's interested in our faith in him in spite of how we perceive or cannot understand or not perceive his work unfolding. You can't figure him out, and he works through things that are not okay. You can't figure that out. But he promises that it will be well with those who fear God. You can't see how all things could possibly be well, but you can believe it. You can rest assured of it. You can have the, what Paul calls in Philippians 4, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. Not through an unquestioning faith. Not just, hey, stop looking at hard things like this. Stop asking questions about hard things like this but through a faith that wrestles with God in prayer. So Hebrews 11 says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. God has said it will be well with those who fear God. We can't understand that. That's something that we hope for. We don't see that. He's made this promise about the future, for those of us who are in Christ, but we've seen God keep this promise to Jesus himself. His delight was in the fear of the Lord. Even though Jesus suffered injustice and he died without seeing justice, God in his perfect justice raised him from the dead and now it is well with him. We've seen God fulfill his promises in Jesus, to Jesus. Jesus, the righteous one, he got what you deserved on the cross in his death, but he ultimately got what he deserved. He ultimately got what he deserved for his righteousness in his resurrection and in his ascension into glory. And even though you don't deserve it because of his grace, you will get what he deserved because he's promised you a resurrection like his. And just like his resurrection made his death worth it, all the sin, all the evil, all the wickedness leading up to his death, his resurrection made it worth it. Just like that, our resurrection will make all the injustices that we suffer and make it worth it. In fact, this God, who is able to demonstrate his righteousness in Christ through the injustices that Jesus suffered, he's able to bring you into a resurrection glory that will be all the better for the sin that he's allowed us to endure. as you might, you'll never figure that one out in this life, but figuring God out is not a prerequisite for trusting him for finding your contentment and your joy in him. Verse 15 says, In this whole mess of apparent contradictions, Ecclesiastes commends joy. He commends joy. He doesn't commend floundering and frustration because of the apparent contradictions. He doesn't commend resisting God until you have a satisfactory explanation of all his mysteries. He commends joy because God has given us life, because God will make all things well. And it will be well with those who fear God because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us to bring our struggles and our questions to you. Help us to wrestle with you in prayer, believing in Jesus. Help us to live with contentment and joy, not because we know everything about how you work in our lives and in this world, but because we know you, that you are good, that you've revealed your righteousness in Christ and that you have your good purposes. We've seen that in Jesus, even if we don't fully understand it. Help us to fear you. Help us to trust that it will be well with us because of you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.